0: Let's dive into improving our state of being. Welcome back, podcast family. I really am so excited today to bring you Melissa Bernstein. 32 years ago, Melissa and her husband Doug, both from families of educators, decided to create toys for children that were open ended and encouraged kids to use their imagination rather than being overwhelmed by bells, whistles, and technology. She's incredibly grateful for the smiles they've been able to bring millions of children every year at Melissa and Doug. As a creative introvert, Melissa rarely speaks in public, but a few years ago, she decided to reveal her story on a favorite podcast. She was humbled to receive hundreds of messages from listeners who shared similar feelings, wanting to understand the journey she took to self-acceptance and how she channeled profound darkness into radiant light. She realized others could perhaps benefit from her journey, which became the centerpiece of her lifelines ecosystem. Having traveled this winding and arduous journey of her own, her greatest goal is to help others find their path towards self awareness, meaning and light. At lifelines, they don't claim to have all the answers, but they can promise you one thing. They will work tirelessly to ensure you are not alone. Melissa and I had a really great and deep conversation, and I'm honored to bring this to you. Here we go with Melissa. What an absolute honor and blessing to have Melissa Bernstein here with me today. I've really been looking forward to this interview, her newest creation, and it is, It's I, I feel like I can't even call this... A book because it doesn't give any credence to how amazing it is. It's a creation and a movement. And so we will dive into all of that, but I just want to first welcome you, Melissa. Thank you so much for coming
1: on. Thank you, Claudia. I'm so happy to be here.
0: Yeah. So happy to have you here. So as I start each episode, I always ask, what does true wellness
1: mean to you? So I would love to know your take on that. Wow, that's been a lifelong journey for me. And I don't think I could have ever answered that question before just recently, because you know when you don't prioritize yourself and you don't choose yourself and you don't give yourself self-care, uh, I didn't even know what wellness meant. But I think today it means having my toolbox of lifelines. And lifelines are a practice that allows me to be here every single day. And when I start to fall below the surface, kind of props me back up. So my lifelines consist of three categories. The first is self-care, which is like really uh, important and something I never engaged in. The second are my tools and sort of the skills I've had to develop to prop myself up. And then the third and probably most important are my, my passions and my play, which really keep me in my heart. And I have to engage in deliberately every day to make sure I stay out of my head and in my heart.
0: Mm, I love that. I love, I love those three pillars and they're so important to, to really dive deeper into, which we'll do through this episode. Now, instead of just asking you, give me your, you know, your, your timeline. (laughs) um, Mm -hmm. I want to start off by, and I've taken lots of notes on this amazing creation. Again, I'm going to hesitate to even call it a book because I want people to know that it is a creation. So I really want to dive a little bit into your background into getting into the toy world, but I want to do so by reading some of your amazing words. And that is you say, toy concepts seemed to flow out of me as naturally as breathing. And then you later shared a lifeline reading that says, I must channel pain to product or I'll suffocate in woe for the grief is all but killing me with nowhere else to go. And so I would love just to start with that and move into an expansion of why you just, you. it was a reality that had to happen, it, like the toy making had to happen. So talk us through, through that a little bit.
1: Sure. So creativity in general was somewhat innate in me from probably the moment I could form thoughts and words because what was going on in my head was so despairing. I think, you know, I was born with this deep existential despair, which made me question the meaning of life at every moment and wonder why I was here and why everyone else seemed so happy when life was so imminently going to end in mortality. So the, cre- the creations, the creativity was my way of making order from the chaos and forming and and channeling that deep darkness into something I could hold in my hands because then it started to give that despair meaning so it really didn't matter what it was and it's 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 evolved into any form you can imagine I mean I started by writing music I wrote these verses that rhyme that probably were my most um innate form of of creativity but then it channeled into toys, uh, which was amazing because I think toys was the very first time I realized I had a choice. You know, Until we started making toys, I felt a victim of the creativity because it was so dark and despairing that I was almost like just, oh, you know, run through me and create this really dark stuff that I can't share with anyone is gonna stay in darkness and never see light. And then it never gave my life meaning. And I still kept asking the questions why. But when we started making toys, it was incredible because I realized that very same darkness that spawned all those dark verses and songs could actually channel into radiant light through making toys for children. And that was a profound sense of agency that I had never felt before, that I could choose to channel darkness into darkness or darkness into light. Mm-hmm. I love that.
0: And I know you talk about existential depression, and I I, I almost want to like pick those two words apart, because for people who don't necessarily know this part of your journey yet, like maybe this is the first they're hearing of it, um, or maybe they've caught glimpses of it somebody on the outside might think, you know, we're talking to somebody who has made a really great successful living on very tangible products. Right. And so how do we, how do I now think of this person as somebody who, um, thought about or, or labeled herself as having existential depression. So existential being like not very tangible and then depression, how can somebody with all of this feel depressed. And so I would love for you to kind of bring us into this part of your journey and what existential depression means or meant when you first realized the word and how it fits so well with what you were feeling and what that, what that means now. Oh,
1: that's an incredible question. And so deep. Yeah. You know, my form of despair did not have a trigger other than my being born the trigger was being born because i was born with it and i knew it from the moment i was born and even my mother said for the first year of my life i screamed 24/7 she could not console me and the screams were not like your normal colicky screams they were screams of of pain and i think I was asking that question, like, why am I even here uh, from the very beginning? And, you know, when you are asking these deep questions, and of course, no one is giving you answers. And in fact, everyone else seems to be so carefree that, you know, they're not unsettled with the same, the same malaise, you feel utterly not at home in the world or in your yourself. So I think, that sense of despair riddled me. But interestingly, it's not a pathological condition. It's not like other depression that has a trigger. It is a, I call it an intellectual, philosophical and spiritual crisis, actually. It was a crisis like of my soul because I was stuck in my head and I couldn't figure out the way to my soul to find my meaning. So I was in utter like pain so dire that, you know, I didn't want to be here because I couldn't figure out what I was meant to do while I was here.
0: Hmm. That's really so deep. And I think what strikes me is that you even talk about in the book, this, and you just mentioned it, this started happening. these, These existential questions, even though maybe you didn't use the term existential happened pretty early on. I mean, I am now you know, after having large events, like my father dying, you know, I started to ask those questions, Mm -hmm. but I mean, that was into my forties. So I think it's so fascinating that you had this curiosity, this spiritual curiosity, whether you had the language for it or not at a really young age.
1: And, you know, I wrote a verse at like five or six and it was, I'll succumb to utter madness and most surely go insane if I cannot numb life's sadness or make meaning from its pain. And that was really like, and I wrote many, many verses about the futility of living if I couldn't find my why.
0: Wow. So you did find some peace and purpose in the toy making, some way of expressing your creativity. What part though was still lacking throughout that? What, you know, you had decades of doing amazing things for kids, but, and somebody looking on would say, you know, why, you know, why wasn't that enough? You know, what, what, what was lacking and how did you know it was lacking?
1: Really? That's a, that's a great question. Yeah. So once I started making toys, I did find salvation in creation, probably one of my rhymes, salvation in creation, um, you know, through channeling that darkness into light. However, I had still never accepted myself for who I was. And I was still, racing away from everything that made me a creative person, because all those characteristics were so stigmatizing. And I had been so, you know, ridiculed throughout my life for being this overly sensitive, highly uh, intellectual, introverted, creative person. And I basically hid it all from myself and the world and adopted a facade of perfection and being like, you know, not so intellectual and not curious because I knew I would be rejected if I came out as who I truly was. So I was still so disassociated from my soul. You know, I knew that I had this channel, and that felt really comforting, but I still knew that until I accepted myself and and everything that went into creating anything I I created, I would never rest in peace or be fulfilled.
0: Mm. I think this is such an important message for anybody who feels like well, everybody says, you know, I'm super successful. Maybe I should just, you know, be okay with it and accept that this is amazing to everybody else. It should be amazing to me. And there, but there was still this fire within that you knew that there was more. And so I think this is such an important message to so many. Um, and can I'm, I say one thing? Yes. You know, I'm
1: getting so many letters from people, thank goodness, who, who feel the same way. And everyone says, I'm showing a different face to the world than what is going on inside everyone, thousands and thousands of people. And I think even if we're not as <laughs> afflicted as I, I think so many of us feel like we can't show who we are to the world. And that is absolutely tragic. So one of my reasons in coming out is to say, you can think someone is a certain way by, you know, superficial appearances. It's never how they truly are.
0: hmm. Yeah. Such an important message and and movement. That's why I kind of call this a creation of movement because it's so much more than any, any other word can express. Let's talk a little bit about your connection to others. Cause I'm thinking as you're, as you're going through this sort of, you know, transitional phase of, okay, I knew something else needed to happen. I know there's another purpose to my life and how do I make, you know, that transition and start to, to connect with the world. And, you know, although toy making did connect you, um, you didn't know those people. You didn't get to talk to them. You saw reviews and, but it it was a different kind of a connection, not necessarily the social connection that we often need, which is why I think this movement is so important. But in the book, you talk about how lonely it was to not be able to connect with others. And your words are, Despite my efforts to travel deeper and disclose my truth, I was unable to find a comrade willing to journey with me. I had received the message enough times to know others weren't able to meet me in my pain, wanting to see me as utterly impervious. I would love for you to just kind of expand on that, that concept of connection and
1: disconnection. Yeah. I think when we cannot form relationships as our authentic self, we experience a sense of isolation that is almost unbearable. And, you know, the few times that I tried to show people that I was struggling, you know, I was extremely lonely and feeling like no one would ever accept me. They rejected me, you know, and not because they rejected me. I now see it's because they were very uncomfortable within themselves of those deep, dark feelings when we cannot accept ourselves in totality. The truth is we can't accept anyone else. So I now see that. But of course, at the time, when you're, when you're, you know, in a small little way, trying to say to someone, see me, please see me in my despair and just show me that you're, you're with me. Like you don't know what to do necessarily, but you're here with me and I'm not alone. Like that goes such a long way, but unfortunately, you know, even those who did see me wanted me to get better. And I think, you know, I wrote a verse, they could never just accept me as the one I truly was oh, always hoping I'd get better, though depression never does. Mm. And, you know, that is like how I felt my, my whole life. Like, are you better today? Is it better? Are you going to, you know, and it was like this sense that I wasn't okay being despairing because that was who I was. So when people said, are you better? And of course, the, the 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 idea is like, you're not okay as you are. So you need to get better, mm-hmm. uh, which of course is rejecting exactly who I was. So, so many of us feel unseen, unheard, and unable to truly show who we are. And I think You know, there are two things that need to happen in society, in my opinion. You know, one is more of us have to have the courage to come out. But that isn't nearly enough, because even when I had the courage to do it at at small points in my life, nobody wanted to hear me and nobody accepted me. So guess what I did? I went right back into that shell and vowed to never come out again. And I think those in society, because mental health is at such a crisis point now, you know, we have to know how to respond to someone who says, I'm really questioning whether I want to be here anymore. And, and what you say to someone who says that to you, because unless we learn how to really embrace people in their pain and show them they're not alone, they, you know, we will have epidemic um, levels of, of really dire things happening.
0: Such an important conversation, because, you know, as you said, our, are you better? The question is always, you know, are you, how are you doing today? Are you good? Are you better than mm-hmm. you were yesterday? Or, and, and what does that even mean? You know, it's societal's societal, defi- society's definition. What would you say throughout the years of you not necessarily having the openness or, camaraderie to discuss this, but maybe some of the few people in your life, the few close people in your life, maybe your husband, other family members, um, close friends, what were some of the things that were helpful in the way that they said or did or acted or supported you? And some of the things, not necessarily having to name anybody, but some of the things that looking back people, not necessarily knowingly, but maybe said in a way or did in a way that was unintentionally Harmful or hurtful, and um, we don't necessarily know how to navigate. We're we're not really yes. great navigators of of mental health because it has continues to be so taboo. Which is why I love this movement of openness. But what what were some of the you know the differences and the ways people helped you and and maybe hurt unintentionally hurt or harmed your journey? Sure,
1: I'll start with the harm because a lot of it is the words people used even to describe me, and I'm going to talk about this actually today. I, w- I was telling you before I had this epiphany last night, because I remembered that people always called me high strung. And I was thinking about it because I always played guitar and I played a lot of stringed instruments. And that high strung means your tuning knob, which I always said is really high, but no one ever said those things as a positive. It was like, you're so dot, 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 or you're too. So you're too high strung, you're too thin skinned. You're too emotional, you're too sensitive, you're, you're too edgy or touchy, or um, you're, you're always on pins and needles, which I am because I have a skin sensitivity. So I think just the comments people would always say to me, my whole life, were basically telling me that something was wrong for, with me for being exactly who I was. Or another one was, you're so negative. You know, because when I would let my, when I stopped, when I didn't hide, my true self was really negative. I mean, I'm an existential nihilist. Like, I believe that life has no meaning. So yeah, that's about as negative as you get. But anytime I would be negative and and kind of let my guard down, people would be like, gosh, you're so negative. And I wanted to say like, yes, I am negative. Like I'm trying to find the meaning to life and my why. And until I find that I'm really in a really deep, dark place. So uh, I wrote a list of like 50 words that people called me that really were stigmatizing and and saying basically being this overly sensitive, hyper aroused person um, is not a good thing. So I would say our words can really hurt people. You know, just like when a university professor called my my verses sophomoric, you know, that word maybe was the most hurtful word of my life because it meant that my, my words were foolish and inane and stupid. So I think, you know, thinking about the words we use to describe people, we really have to go a long way. And then when There were those who helped me. I think all we ever want to do is be seen and and explain what's going on with us. So I think very few people ever said to me sort of, how are you feeling? Tell me exactly what it's like to be you, Melissa. And if they heard it, then say, wow, that must be so, so challenging. I can't even imagine what it's like. If someone would have said that, and I always imagined in my head that someone would do that, like that I had this, this warm, compassionate being to just talk to and, and really, and that's why I developed imaginary friends in my head, you know, from the time for like the first 12 years of my life, I had these two imaginary friends that became my best friends and they like accepted me exactly as I was because no one else would.
0: Really interesting. And I, you know, it's interesting as you talk through that, I think of how I am I'm now to the point I think you were maybe when you were 5 which is you know starting the a couple of years ago this existential questioning and curiosity and you know all like I said stimulated just by death in my family and um you know I think it's interesting that it's tied in our society to being negative but it's because we as a society don't know how to talk about existential questions and spirituality and so you know to to start talking about
1: our mortality is negative but it's just a truth <laughs> And that's why one of the volumes in my book is hypocrisy, because I couldn't understand like, why shouldn't we be negative? Like we're going to, our lives are going to end. And what are we supposed to do while we're here to make meaning in that very short time? And I couldn't understand how people could be so carefree and seemingly uncaring of their fate when it was staring them in the eye. So yes, I was left like even more, confused about what was going on and i think those of us who are really afflicted with existential questions we always use the word absurd because it truly seems that it is absurd it's like we know the truth mm-hmm. the reality is so overpowering that it's like knocking us down every moment and yet everyone else seems to be oblivious of the truth and and some of the the great philosophers talked about it as living an inauthentic life in denial and an authentic life with the realism of what will ensue and i was always like why don't you see it like i wanted to shake the world and say why are you being so blind to the truth of existence and you can imagine how when you're five years old and thinking that how that really puts you on another planet. And that's what I always said, I felt like I didn't belong here, that I was that it was all like this weird game and like why was I put down in the middle of this planet thinking entirely different than everyone else? And it was incredibly stigmatizing. It wasn't like I was like, "Woohoo, I'm thinking differently." It was like, "I don't belong here and I need to exit this world because something is very, very wrong."
0: Mm. I can only imagine because I, you know, even in my own transition and starting to think that way and trying to find people my age, you know, to talk to about that at five, that would be a lot more difficult. So I can only imagine, you know, I think about some of the the journeys in our life and how things could be drastically different, but how they, they are now and thinking back, let's say, you know, let's say you you lived in a different um, area of the world, or maybe at, you know, at five, your parents were like, I don't know how to deal with these questions. So I'm going to send her to an ashram or, you know, you know, a nunnery or what, you know, and and, and be with people who talk like her and that would let's say that would have been your life. Um, how do you think the the difference is in having those existential questions and curiosity among those who d- didn't and couldn't speak your language sort of informed your trajectory to now and the impact you're able to have versus you being amongst, everybody else who thinks the same way. And maybe you wouldn't have had the, um, the, the feeling of purpose to create something like yeah. you've created.
1: That's a great question. And I use the analogy with my therapist a lot and that diamonds, you know, require incredibly high pressure and incredibly high heat to form into this beautiful diamond. And I kind of feel like I was in that pressured situation, that pressure cooker my whole life, like trying to conform and trying to be like everyone else to such a degree. I almost took my life because I tried to be something I wasn't and couldn't attain it. So I I failed at everything I tried to do in that sense, in the conventional sense. And finally, it getting to the point when I couldn't resist any longer, you know, pain plus resistance equals suffering and i was suffering to such a great degree inside that i thought i would my my heart would break Um, if I didn't surrender and come out as who I truly was. So, you know, I view it as, I guess, the dots connecting and needing to be under that extremity of pressure for so many years to get to the point where I didn't care. And the truth is when I finally, you know, the the lid off, off the pressure cooker came, like was thrown off, I didn't care. Like I was like, I've played the game. I've done that, that trying to conform. I've listened to what everyone told me. I've repressed my feelings and I am utterly miserable. Like I'm not doing it anymore. And now when people ask me, they're always like, oh my gosh, like, you know, you, you came out and like this, this image you have is shattered. I'm like, yep. Uh, And it's, there's been nothing more liberating in my life because it took that amount of pressure to, to have me finally say nothing matters except soothing the, my soul and, and, and accepting myself in totality.
0: Mm, So beautiful. It makes me want to, I'm going to read the quote that's on the, on the very front of your book, which says today I saved a life, although it was my very own, which won't serve a greater purpose till I rescue lives unknown. And so I just, I love that that is what is on the front and it kind of just informs the journey that you you read as you read yeah. through the creation <laughs> I'm like still not wanting to call it a book because it's just <laughs> a, it's a, it's such a an amazing creation that it it, it transcends that so thank um, you and
1: and ultimately what gave my life meaning is the fact that I saved my own life to help others live fulfilling lives as well
0: and it's such an amazing Amazing thing to do that somebody, like I said, on looking would say, but you don't have to, you could go live on an Island and you could, you could listen to Ram Dass all day and you could, you know, you could be around those who have um, existential conversations um, and you, but you choose to do something else with it. You choose to be proactive with it and create a movement. So kind of talk us through the decision to do this, the decision for lifelines and,
1: you know, and then we'll kind of get into, into the vision too, of what, what you're looking forward to. Sure. So, you know, my dots didn't start connecting until my late 40s because I didn't know, like, I didn't know I suffered from existential despair or had any of these things called hypersensitivities. I repressed, denied, and disassociated from everything I was my whole life and anchored to perfection and performance and became a very high achieving person in, in all accounts uh, and, and really just repressed everything else, truly and was living a a very beautiful life in most standards. I mean, I created this $500 million company with my best friend and husband. We had six children, like we were going to the the sporting events on the weekends. I mean, we were the the family that never stopped moving and it was incredible. I mean, really in, in every other way. But the drumbeat of my own soul to be seen authentically was growing louder and louder and louder and still my why. Because although I was creating these toys that certainly, you know, were getting out there in the world and giving kids joy, I still wasn't being seen as who I was. And all that despair that created those toys was still being hidden from the world. And I felt like an imposter you know, I add the more I lived, the more I realized, like, I have never had a truly authentic relationship in my life. Like I am sort of living under this, this societal um, perfection. So uh, I started some dots started to connect. And I realized with, I call it shellation, shock and elation, that I actually was afflicted with something that had a name, and that others had been afflicted with as well. And Lo and behold, they were highly creative people. So for the first time in my life, I had this, this realization that I wasn't alone. And actually all these stigmatizing qualities that gave me the ability to create were, were who I was, and, and, uh, and a result of having this overly sensitive, hyper overexcitable personality. So it all started to connect that, oh, my goodness, maybe this ability to create is not a curse, but a blessing. It's a blurse. And all these qualities that have spawned it are actually not something I should try to kill, but something I should actually embrace. And it was just the most incredible realization that I knew I had to go out there and express it to the world. So I did that. I went on um, one of my favorite podcasts about three years ago and exposed my truth. And I received hundreds and hundreds of letters from people saying, you're not going to believe this, but you gave voice for the very first time to what I have been experiencing as well. And I realized that we have a huge issue in society, namely that there's so many millions of people wallowing in despair, not knowing what their meaning is and how to find their light. And I had, you know, we, we, we experienced much of the same feelings. I mean, our feelings, all of us are the same. The only difference between myself and them was I had figured out the way to channel my darkness into light and they were still in darkness. So I knew that I wanted to spend the rest of my life helping people turn their darkness into light and making them feel that actually they're not alone at all. So lifelines.com, our ecosystem Doug and I wanted to give back because we've had 32 years of just being so fortunate with Melissa and Doug. So we wanted to create a free ecosystem based on three core tenets. You know, the first being you are not alone which sounds really cliched. A lot of people say that you're not alone. And do they mean it? No, Um, because people said that to me many times in my life and I was still utterly alone. So you are not alone in our definition and the lifelines definition means that we are truly going to embrace you exactly as you are in all your darkness and all your light and stand shoulder to shoulder with you, um, you know, letting you know that we're, we're here for you in however you want to come to us. The second, which I mentioned, core is that we all have the capacity within to channel our darkness into light. Many of us don't think that because our beautiful seeds of self-expression have been dampened for so many years by society or by trauma or by tragedy. But the truth is, if you can sort of get rid of those layers and let those sparks of innate self-expression rise, you will find your meaning and your purpose in that. And then the third, which became really important to me is until we stop racing outside ourselves for the answer, because we're all looking outside for that quick fix for someone who will save us and fix us until we realize it's not coming from outside and we need to stop racing and make that journey inward to accept ourselves in totality, we will never rest in peace or find fulfillment.
0: Hmm. So beautiful. So it really all started from the sort of coming out with your truth and story on the podcast and seeing and receiving all of the feedback and realizing there's a platform here for me to make a big difference. And there's people who are resonating with this message and I need to do more. And Lifelines is largely at least this creation part of it is largely a lot of poetry that you have written over over the years that you've kept correct
1: yes so you know my verses which are my most innate form of creating order from the chaos that reigns every day in here i never showed them to the world because i always believed they were too simple dark and despairing and when in my 20s i showed them to a professor uh, for an MFA program, he too said they were sophomoric and I didn't get into the program. So I truly believed that they didn't deserve to be seen by anyone, yet they were the truest expressions of my soul. I mean, they, they depict everything I ever felt, everything I ever questioned, all the hip- hypocrisy in the world. And I felt like, unless I could allow those to be seen by others and perhaps touch them in some way, I would never be able to be at peace. So when I collected them finally, because I had never let them see light, there were over 3000 of them. There were about 3500 of these little verses that had mostly been scrawled on toilet paper. (laughs) That was, it was a lot of toilet paper and a lot of little scraps of other paper and anything I could get my hands on because they just come to me sort of like um, fully finished. Uh, So I gathered them and I wanted them to determine the volumes of this book. So when I looked at all 3,500 and divided them into the categories they represented, Crazily, they, they came went into like 300 verses in each of 11 categories. And those became really uh, the volumes of the book because those verses, like I needed them to, to guide the way and be seen as they truly were. They're just so amazingly beautiful, and it, you know, I
0: mean, I've I've bought pl- a lot of Melissa and Doug toys because they're amazing. And um, but I just love that now we're getting to know you in such a beautifully written and creative way. Like I, d- it's just beautiful. All I can tell the listeners Thank is you. is get is get the although oh, I have wow. to call it a book get get the Lifelines um creation because it really is beautiful. And as we talk about your vision for Lifelines, I want to read a few near the back um, of these, um, of your amazing words. You say, I now realized my mission extended well beyond the creation of toys, which had enabled me to channel inner pain, but brought no sense of personal connection with the products recipients. At long last, I felt the dots of my life uniting in an even more fulfilling manner with every life experience leading in the direction of helping others extricate light." from darkness. I had learned firsthand that darkness didn't have to emanate from darkness and we all had capacity to turn pain into promise. I could use my life experience and encourage others locked in their heads to find a lifeline and purpose through creating, giving to, or helping others from the wellspring in their hearts. And I want to read one more section and then kind of talk about your vision. You say, my final epiphany was that I would never find fulfillment until the voice most authentically flowing out of me was embraced by others. Although I was now over a half century in age, I had still never forged a genuine relationship in my honest voice. And if my truth and life experience could finally revel in light and touch others, it would inextricably link my soul to humanity far beyond mortal form, granting an eternal sense of oneness and profound inner peace. I just, I mean, you're, this is, and this is indicative. I mean, for those listening who don't know about this, this creation, this is, I mean, this beauty is this entire book is just this beauty, these, mm-hmm. this beautiful um, verbiage and words. So, you know, you talk about linking my soul to humanity. Um, You know, I don't know that there's any, anything else to, to, to say in the shortest amount of words of what, what you're doing, but I would love to know, you know, sort of your vision. So, you know, you start with this sort of fire after hearing the feedback after that podcast, and then, you know, we talk. We talked a little bit before about the existential, just reality of mortality, and um, and I think it is. You know, I'm at that point in my life too, where it's like, what 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 kind of impact am I having? Knowing I will leave this, we are all leaving this earth. What impact can I leave? What's sort of your vision and for your for the impact, short term and long term?
1: That's an amazing, amazing question. I mean, my vision is we create this community of just beautiful souls that want to rage freely exactly as who they are and not feel that they have to conform to a societal definition of what it means, you know, to be happy. And I think what I'm doing with the content is maybe the most joyous experience of my life, because I'm really creating the content now and we're having these workshops uh, that are have been nothing short of incredible. I mean, they're not perfect, which is part of my, my healing, is to not strive for perfection. But basically we're taking every societal myth and we're busting right through it because it's all a lie. And somehow, you know, I was saying to, to our group the other day, like, who's society and how did we get all these societal like standards that we need to attain? And of course, not one of us attains them. So we lead our lives feeling inadequate and unfulfilled. I mean, who said, you know, the pursuit of happiness? You have to be happy all the time because it's a lie. Like no one's happy all the time. And when you believe, when you start to realize that these are just mind stories, and unfortunately, we believe them to such an extent that we always feel like we're falling short, I mean, and failing. That's everybody, no matter whether you've achieved the highest peak of success, like myself in a way, or, or haven't even gotten a foot off the ground, we all feel like losers. Like we all feel like failures. And the number one negative cognition, by the way, is I am unworthy. I'm worthless. So it's the number one of all of them. And we all feel it. So that right there would say something is very wrong when Melissa feels it. And so does the person who hasn't gotten off the ground. So why do we feel it? Because again, we're aspiring to something unattainable that society has put on us. So like, I want to just bust through all of it and really show that living is the full spectrum of emotion from the highest of highs to the lowest of lows. And because half of it is below the equanimity line, half of it is going to be dark. Every day, there's going to be Dark moments and light moments. And until we can all admit that that is life, it's not happy in the upper half of the spectrum all the time because it's impossible. We are chemicals and we are undulating like, you know, an ocean. So I'm trying to let everyone see that I, Melissa Bernstein, have really dark days, very many of them. And it's not about have not having the dark days. It's about having a practice to get through them and still make light in those dark days, despite how dark they are. So, and, and I wrote a verse about it just recently, actually hope I remember it. The converse of depression isn't everlasting bliss, but developing a practice to transcend its emptiness.
0: Mm.
1: So, you know, we're not saying like once you stop being depressed or once you ease your depression, you're going to, every day is going to be blissful. I wish. And I thought that was, that was one of my, uh, you know, misperceptions was I thought, well, I did the work. I accept myself now. Like I know I'm an introverted creative and I embrace that. Like, why aren't I happy all the time now? Right. I've accepted myself. It should be utter bliss. And I realized, no, that's the whole point. Once you accept yourself in totality, It means you're accepting the full spectrum and half of it is darkness. So it means that if we truly allow all our feelings, we have to have that practice. And that's what I'm trying to show people is I have a practice. Believe me, it's right here. I call it my toolbox and I'm holding it all day long. And the minute I start to get it, get in my head and start to think about, you know, the futility of it all. I have to open my my toolbox and say, okay, what are you going to pull out now, honey? Are you going to go on a walk? Are you going to drink some tea? Are you going to talk to a friend? Are you going to write some verses? Like I need it because I will go below the line and not come back. So I think we all have to recognize we're human. That is, you know, humanity is imperfect. Humanity is the full spectrum of emotion and humanity needs a daily practice to remain steadfast in the midst of it.
0: Mm. I love, I love the toolbox. I talk about, often about, you know, having, having some resource box. We aren't taught that. I mean, we are not model and not no. to the fault of our parents. They didn't know either, but you know, it's not taught. It's not modeled for us. And so I love that you are being that mentor teacher, resource. Yes. And here's, here's the real
1: key. When times are good, we, we disengage in our practice because we're like, we don't need it. Cause it, cause a practice is a practice. It takes work mm-hmm. and it's kind of a pain, like to have to do it every single day is annoying, especially when you're not below the line. So what happens is we have a few good weeks and we're like, I don't need a practice. Like I'm doing great. And then what happens one day you open your eyes and you're like, uh Oh, it's here. And then what do you have to, to hold on to, 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 to support you, nothing. So what I say is a practice needs to be practiced every single day. And I believe that kids from preschool on need their toolbox. I call them life of lifelines. And they, they need to be engaging in it every single day from early, early years on, because then it will become muscle memory. And then, and now what happens, honestly, to, to, to be truly, tru, truly honest is On those days that I wake up and there are tears on my pillow and I don't even know why because that's how I'm a real, you know, um, vacillating spectrum of emotion. I I immediately say, okay, Melissa, I don't wallow. I don't go up here like, oh, my gosh, it's here again. It's never going to leave and start, you know, perseverating like, ah, I I immediately just say, okay, what are you going to do today? Like, how are you going to harness that despair and make something meaningful out of it? And those are the days that I create a lot more, that I commune more with nature, that I cling more to my pets. I, I do more with Doug, you know, and, and I, if I do that, if I, if I don't wallow or think how bad it is, and I just allow it and engage my lifelines, I realize by like halfway through the day that I'm no longer in that dark funk, I'm, I'm pretty much even. So I've proven to myself that I alone can pull myself out of that despairing place. And that alone, especially for so many who feel powerless, is incredibly uh, grit building. You know, it gives them a a true sense of agency.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it's it's because of you utilizing that toolbox and allowing it to flow that we have this beautiful work of art had you not... You know, allowed the words to flow onto paper all of those years that they did, we wouldn't have this. I mean, you certainly could have still created something, but you wouldn't have had all of the years of amazing language that can resonate with so many now. So it's, it really is just a testament to the beauty that can come from Mm -hmm. and the light that can come from even the darkness. So I'm just so appreciative of you sharing all of this and for you to not have moved to the island and. and only um, sat with and listened to um, amazing other, you know, podcasts and speakers and mentors, but that you became one yourself. And um, I mean, just an amazing legacy of all of the great toys that you've given us and our children and my own son, but also now, the amazing work that you're doing in this space and giving others a voice. And, and it's fantastic that you have been proactive with this and you could have just put this out into the world. I mean, you certainly, this would have been amazingly uh, impactful just in and of itself, but that you're creating a community and um, opening up a, you know, helping us start to disconnect because I talk a lot about disconnecting dots we have so many connections that have been made for us through society and I really feel like part of this is helping us disconnect those dots disconnect that success equals um eternal and always having bliss you know eternal happiness and um and that we can reframe and and put different language to it and and be a little bit more realistic with who we are as humans so thank you so much for all of that and for this lovely conversation.
1: Oh, you're welcome, Claudia. And, and just so your listeners know, like it's entirely free. So please join us, listen to one of our workshops, contribute. We do a lot of sharing uh, and, and we can really start to not feel so alone and that really we're all exactly the same. And everything is at lifelines.com.
0: Is there any other place they should be going?
1: Nope, not not at all. Lifelines.com. They'll get everything they need.
0: Thank you to Melissa for taking the time to share her heart, her soul, and her journey with us. And for this masterpiece that she has created and movement that she's sharing with others, there is truly so much light to come from all of the darkness. And I love this work and I highly encourage you all to purchase the lifelines book, but also be part of the community. So lifelines.com. And it'll be in the show notes as well. I look forward to hearing your feedback on this episode, and I would highly appreciate any love on the iTunes reviews as well. I'll see you here again next time.